Please turn with me to the book of James, chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 17. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your divine help. Help me to preach this word. Help us all to understand it, apply it to our lives, and and change our hearts. Father, may no one leave here today unchanged. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So one of the recurring themes here in James chapter 4 is the, the, the sin of pride. Now even when it is not mentioned directly, James is often Um, alluding to pride, you can see pride in the undertones there. For example, he addresses conflicts and fights within the church, and he attributes this to their desire for pleasure that war in their members, but but we can also clearly see the pride intermingled with those sinful passions. Christians who are humble and, and marked by their humility do not fight one another over personal preferences. There's pride there. And James also addresses pride directly. He said in verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. The the call to humble oneself, it it makes it evident that he's dealing with an issue of pride. He said in verse 6, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 11, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And we saw that to speak evil means to slander. James was dealing with the issue of believers slandering one another, which he associates with judging one another. We saw that James is not referring to righteous examination when he talks about judgment, but he's talking about harsh condemnation. Harsh condemnation that comes from a critical spirit, which we could say is rooted in pride. What causes a Christian to harshly judge another? Pride. Pride causes us to look at others with a a critical eye and even judge motives. Pride causes us to think the worst of others' intentions while assuming the best 
of our own intentions. But there is another way in which pride manifests itself in the Christian life. And this is what James deals with in our text this evening. So let us first look at the sinful pride of self-sufficiency. Now let us start by looking at verse 16 to put this into context. Skipping up to 16, he says, But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So verse 16 tells us exactly what James is addressing. You boast in your arrogance. Now what does it mean to boast in your arrogance? Well, well the word boast does not necessarily indicate sin. For example, Scripture says we are to boast in the Lord. This, this word is associated with, with trust or confidence. To, to boast in the Lord is to put one's trust or one's confidence in the Lord. But, but James says you boast in your arrogance. Now what is arrogance? This Greek word means a false pride. Defined as a, a self-exalting, self-absorbed conceit of one's own superiority. Especially one that believes that all achievements are of their own doing. So, so here's a person putting their confidence and their ability to achieve things, whatever it is that they do, according to their own doing. They're, they're self-confident. This is a person who believes that everything they accomplish in life is, is because of their own goodness, their own actions, their own doing, their, their own good planning, their own execution. So this is a person who, who, who believes as a, as a practical atheist, that everything they do, even as a Christian, is the result of their own doing. They're self-sufficient. This is a person who, who is a practical atheist, as I said. They, they, they acknowledge that there is a sovereign God out there, but they are absolutely self-sufficient. And, and what does this look like? So let us look at self-sufficiency illustrated. And now we go back to verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. James paints a picture of perhaps a businessman who is planning to, to travel for business, to, to make a profit. Now James is not condemning this. This is not inherently wrong. James is not saying that, it, that it's wrong to make plans. James is not saying that it's wrong to plan for a profit. James is not saying that it's, that it's wrong to sell or trade for profit. What is James condemning here? Well, verse 16 again tells us what James has in mind. He's not condemning the traveling businessman who is organized and makes a plan to make profit. No, he is condemning the person who does all of those things without any consideration of God. Here's a person who says, I'm going to make this plan and that plan. This is what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. And never in their mind do they even consider that there's a sovereign God in control of their lives. This person is self-sufficient. And so first, this is a failure to consider the will of God in all that we do. 
We, we get so caught up in our own wonderful plans that we never stop to consider if, if this is what, what God actually wants us to do. We, we don't consult God in prayer. It sounds like, like a good idea to us, so we go for it. We don't search the word for, for wisdom and guidance. We, we don't talk to other mature Christians to obtain wisdom. We just make decisions, even massive decisions, simply because that's what we want to do. No thought to the will of God. What would be most pleasing to God in this situation? But this is also a failure to trust in the Lord for results. We don't pray for God to bless what we do. No, we, we, we did all the right things, so we are totally confident in our ability to make it work. Listen, I planned this thing perfectly. Everything is lined up. There's no way this plan is going to fail. I don't need God's help with this one. I might need your help later on, God, but this one I have figured out. Trust me. And we know how that goes, don't we? But this is what this person is essentially doing. I've done this a thousand times already, and it always works. It's just like science. It works every time. Douglas Moo puts it this way. People not only leave out of account, people not only leave God out of account in, in planning their lives, they brag about it as well, proclaiming in effect their autonomy and independence. James is rebuking not people of the world, but Christians. He warns, therefore, of the tendency of the world to press us into its mode by leading us, perhaps very subtly, to begin assuming that we control the duration and direction of our lives. Such an attitude is simply inconsistent with a Christian worldview in which there's a God who sovereignly directs the course of human affairs. This is the way the world lives, dear saints. But, but as Christians, we have no business living this way. I can even think of my own life many times of making a major decision and afterwards thinking, what, what, what was I thinking? I just made this major decision and, and, I, and I hardly prayed about it. I hardly considered God's Word when, when making this decision. I, I was acting like a, a practical atheist at that point in time, living as though there's not a God or living as though there's not a sovereign God. Let me ask you a couple of questions. How often do you consider God's will when you plan or make a decision? How often do you acknowledge your dependence upon God for success in everything that you do? Does it all just line up so perfectly that you say, I don't need to pray to God for success in this? You know, we live in, in an age where a, a lot of things are reduced to simple formulas. Get, get the formula right, and it works every time. And we have to be careful with this, because formulas can be, be good and based upon good wisdom. For, for example, there, there are countless business books where, where, you, where you get these, these good business principles, and you put them in place, and they, and they tend to work. And, and much of this is based upon the wisdom in, in, in which the way in which God has made the world. 
Or you can take these, these personal growth and development books and you can consume these things and they give you good principles that, that are guaranteed to work. And, and a lot of these principles you can trace right back to the book of Proverbs. So, so there's much wisdom there. But what we have to be careful of is that we're not trusting in those things. Because listen, you can take the, the best formula in the world and God doesn't bless the fruit of it. You, you can have all of the, the, the right ducks in a row and, and God simply does not bless what you are doing. Or, or oftentimes you can even go into a business and, and you say they're not doing everything the right way, but, but God is blessing them. We, we often, even as Christians, can get into this mentality of, of it's just a simple formula and we take God out of the equation. Using things that are helpful can be wise. But the Christian acknowledges that even if we have the best plan, we depend on God for the results. His will be done. When in pride we are self-sufficient, relying on and trusting in our own abilities and planning, we are boasting in our arrogance. And there are two things we learn about such arrogance. Number one, it is foolish. And secondly, it's evil. So let's look thirdly at the folly of self-sufficiency. He says in verse 14, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Self-sufficiency is foolish because the future is unpredictable. He says you do not know what tomorrow will bring. He, and, and he's shadowing here Proverbs 27.1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Listen, we, we can't even accurately predict what will happen tomorrow. Yet this person is saying today, tomorrow, we, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there. We're, we're going to go there and make money for a year. And again, this is not inherently wrong, but he's trusting in himself to do this. We, we can't predict what will happen with our plans over the next five minutes, let alone for a whole year. You, you ever made a plan and then five minutes later the plan is ruined? This is how vulnerable we are. Remember a few weeks ago, actually, we talked about planning. When we, we were mesmerized at, at God's amazing planning and, and, and working all things out throughout history to bring about redemption. And we especially delighted in this in considering our own planning. How often it fails. How vulnerable we are. A change in weather. An accident, someone gets sick, someone forgetting to do something. There are countless things that, that can ruin our plans entirely. Therefore, we ought to live in recognition that although we make plans, we depend on God for the results. Once again, it's not wrong to plan ahead. In fact, it is wise to do so. But with a recognition that our plans need to be subject to the will of God and we are dependent upon Him for the results. And then James further illustrates how unpredictable the future is. He says, For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Dear friends, how can we put confidence 
and our own abilities when we can't even guarantee that we will be here tomorrow. We can't even guarantee we will be here for, for the next five minutes. We, we, we don't control this, James is saying. So that even if we could plan out everything perfectly over the next year, and we could somehow perfectly control every situation to make our plan come about, we still can't guarantee that we will be here. We can't guarantee it. And, and our Lord illustrates this point in, in the parable that He told in Luke chapter 12. He tells this parable saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, And be merry. He has life figured out, doesn't he? But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Make your elaborate plans. But understand that your soul may be required of you tonight, and that's not optional. Let me speak here to to the unbeliever for a moment. Perhaps there's someone here who doesn't really know Christ. How, How foolish is it to live life without thoughts of God when we are mortal creatures who must soon die? Not only are we subject to the will of God and dependent on God for results, but but we must soon stand before God in judgment, each and every one of us. This is a special warning to the unbeliever. You you are busy in your life trying to, to accomplish your own goals and advance your own work, so much so that you have no time for thoughts of God, but but one day you will soon stand before Him in judgment. Do not be like this man who had all his plans worked out for this life, but fail to, to think about eternity. This man who says, I've done a great deal of of good work and now it's time to sit back and enjoy the fruit of my labor. I have no time for that Christianity stuff. And God says, fool, tonight your soul is required of you. Do not be the one who on the day that your soul is required of you, you are found not seeking after the will of God, but seeking to advance your own kingdom. And since no man knows when he must die, you better turn to Christ in in faith and repentance at at this very moment. For for you don't know, in the next five minutes, your soul could be required of you. And your good health at the moment is no guarantee of the furtherance of your life. Your youth, young people, is no guarantee of the furtherance of your life. As Jonathan Edwards would say, your your next step, your very next step could be into eternity. So so how foolish is it to to live this mortal life with no thought of God when, when it's but a short life and you soon have to stand before God in judgment? He says life is a vapor. 
Smoke in the wind. You ever, you ever try to trace smoke? You, ever, you see it and you say, I just want to see where that goes. And, and it just vanishes. Gone. This is your life. But, but eternity is, is, is forever. We must consider this. So, so not only is self-sufficiency foolish because our life is vapor. We can't guarantee tomorrow. But, but, but self-sufficiency is also evil. James says, all such boasting is evil. Why is it evil to have confidence, to trust in one's own ability to accomplish? James answers this in chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. There is nothing good that you have or have done that has not come from God. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not? Received it. That there's nothing good that you have that has not come down from God. That there's nothing that you have that has not been gifted to you from God. So how could you boast in your own abilities? To boast in our own abilities to, to plan and produce is to fail to recognize where all good things come from. Remember that proud King Nebuchadnezzar. Indeed, he was a powerful man. He seemed to be a, a, a brilliant man. And he, he's boastful. Look at, look at what I've created by my mighty hands, but by my power. But, but what does Daniel tell him? It, it's true, King. You, you are a great king. But the God of heaven has given you a kingdom. He's given you power. He's given you strength and glory. Yeah, you rule over many people. But He has made you ruler. In other words, even with Nebuchadnezzar, nothing you have done has been according to your own ability. God has given you everything you have. Dear friends, this is evil. Because to have confidence in our own ability is to lie against the truth that God is the true provider. When I am self-confident, trusting in my own abilities to produce fruit in, in whatever area of life, I am lying against the truth. The truth that God is the actual provider. And secondly, why why is it evil to ignore God's will when we make our plans? Well, to not desire to live according to the will of God is to not be a Christian, dear friends. We we, we talked about this earlier, didn't we? We were created with a purpose, with a mission. We've been given another commission by Christ, the Great Commission. And, And everything that we do... What we eat, what we drink, everything is to be done for the glory of God. So, so as a believer, how can we live without a thought towards God's will? Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But who? He who does the will 
of my Father. Listen to the words of Christ. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. I am sustained by doing my Father's will. That's the most important thing in my life. That's the Christian position. And if that is our position, how could we possibly make decisions without considering whether or not it's in God's will? How can that not be a thought in our minds? How can we not see our dependence? And Jesus meant what He said. And He says in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This was a key theme in the life of Christ. And then He proves it. The Garden of Gethsemane. When the, when the Father's will was now going to become painful and excruciating and a cause of great agony and distress. And even in the midst of that, what does He do? He says, if there's some other way, Lord, but, but, but that's not my ultimate purpose. My ultimate purpose is to do Your will. So Your will, not mine, be done. Even when it hurts. To be a Christian is to live for the will of God and in total dependence upon God. To not do this, James says, is evil. And by the way, James knew that some people may be tempted to say, wait a minute. You're going to say that that it's evil for me not to do that. For it's evil for me to, to not be thinking in my mind, what's the will of God here? That, that it's evil for me to, 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 to not trust in God for the results and trust in my own actions. Yes, James says it's evil. And perhaps some would say, come on now, this, this is not really, a, a, it's not really sin, is it? This is not a sin of commission. I'm not committing an act of sin here. I'm simply failing to do something. So he says in verse 17, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is what we call a sin of omission. Yes, when we fail to do what we should, it is sin. No, we did not do a specific act, but we failed to do what we were commanded to do. So it is still a sin. I wonder if we all recognize sins of omission in our lives as real sins. Listen to what Moose says. He has urged us to take the Lord into consideration in our planning. We therefore have no excuse in this matter. We know what we are to do. To fail now to do it, James wants to make clear, is sin. And we cannot take refuge in the plea that we have done nothing positively wrong. As Scripture makes abundantly clear, sins of omission are as real and serious as sins of commission. The servant in Jesus' parable who, who fails to use the money he was entrusted with, And the people who fail to care for the outcast of society, they are condemned for what they failed to do. Jesus' reminder here is an important one. For we have a a tendency to think of sin, a tendency when we think of sin, to think only of those things we have done that we should not 
have done. And he says, I, I, I know my own confessions before the Lord tend to focus on these kinds of sins. But I should also consider those ways in which I have failed to do what the Lord has commanded me to do. Perhaps I did not reach out to help a neighbor in need. Or perhaps I, I failed to bear witness to a co-worker when I had the opportunity. These also are sins for which I must seek God's forgiveness. Sins of omission. Yes, failing to, to acknowledge the will of God in your, in your life is a sin of omission. It's a sin. Failing to trust in God for, for the results of our labor is, is, is a failure to do what we should do. It is a sin. Failing to do what we ought to do is a sin. Let me ask you, when, when is the last time you have reflected on and confessed and repented of sins of omission. Of course, again, we, we, we see the, the, the bad things that we, that we do, and, and others see it, and, and we confess those sins, we, we repent of those sins, but, but do we repent of not doing those things that we should do? Sins of omission. So what does... True dependence on God look like? Well, James illustrates this for us. Very simple. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. That's the proper attitude. If the Lord wills. This is why Christians often say this. Lord willing. If the Lord wills. It is an acknowledgement that, that we are in the hands of God. And, and this is not just to be a cliche on a Christian t-shirt. This is what we do, right? Everything we say in life, Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing. But, but do we really mean that? Though those words should reflect the disposition of our hearts. This is what the apostles often said. We can think of the apostles writing this over and over again in their letters. Paul and Acts, but, but taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. Recognizing that this might not be God's will. This is my desire, but, but it might not be God's will. And I live in recognition of that. So how do we apply this text? Several points of application here. Number one, when, when we don't plan independence on God, we set ourselves up for failure and frustration. We need to hold loosely to our own plans as we recognize that God's plans for our lives may be very different. This is part of what it means to understand and to submit our own plans to God's will. We hold them loosely. Hold your plans loosely to, to avoid frustration. Tr trust that His plans are better. Because listen, when you trust and you're planning and your heart is set on this and you just think that, that, that I have to get this right, otherwise it's not going to work. But if I do get it right, it will work. What happens when God just says, nope, I'm not doing that? You're frustrated. You're devastated. 
You're crushed, but, but this is what was going to happen. This is what we were going to do. And we were set on this. Why? Because you didn't say, Lord willing. You didn't recognize that in your heart. And also, God has a way of, of showing us our dependence upon him. And, and you know, it can be painful. Live in dependence upon God, or, or, or perhaps, you know, he will strip you of everything you hold dear to show you that you rely on him and him alone. God has a way of doing this. Plans failing over and over and over again. And then all of a sudden, you know what, God, what, 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 what would you like me to do? So, sometimes that's what it takes to, to get through our hard heads. We make this plan doesn't work, that plan doesn't work, that plan doesn't work, that plan doesn't work. Wait a minute, I haven't even prayed about this yet. This is actually a mercy, a grace of God, that, that he often does not allow our, our plans with no consideration of him to, to be successful so that we learn to depend upon him. But, but secondly, when we trust in God to direct our plans and bless our endeavors, it is a relief to us. It is actually a relief to trust God for the results of everything that we do. It relieves us to, to be able to simply focus on faithfulness and, and put the results in God's hand. Listen, it, it helps me sleep at night to know that, that, that though I'm, I'm accountable to God for, for being faithful, I am not accountable to God for the fruit of what happens in this church. Faithfulness I am accountable for. And, and I desire marvelous fruit, but, but ultimately I know that, that even in my preaching, I can't produce fruit. I can plant, I can sow, I can water. Who produces the increase? God. If it was up to me, I, I couldn't take it. I, I, can, I can think of a, of a friend of mine, and he was talking about his Conversion from being an Arminian to, to becoming a Calvinist. And how relieving it was. Because he had this burden for souls. And not that believing in God's sovereignty should, should relieve the burden for souls. But what it did relieve is he looked at an unbeliever and said, God will not move in this person's life. It is 100% up to me. And I have to try and try and try because God's not going to do it. I'm responsible for this person's salvation. I'm responsible for my kids' salvation. Not just responsible for, for, for giving them the gospel and, and training them up a certain way. Not just responsible for, for taking the gospel out there, but I actually have to produce the fruit myself because God won't do it. Can you imagine that burden of thinking that it's up to you to learn how to be clever enough or persuasive enough to turn an unbeliever to Christ and carrying that weight around and then suddenly understanding, you know what? I can't change a heart. Only God can. I'm responsible for faithfulness and proclaiming the gospel. But, but ultimately, even though I want this person to be saved and have a burden for their soul, I don't carry the weight of that. Because what happens when, when you believe that a person is going to die and go to hell unless you can persuade them? What happens when they die rejecting Christ? The weight of their condemnation is on your shoulders. But dear friends, although we grieve 
when an unbeliever dies. We don't ultimately carry the weight of that because we know that there's a a sovereign God whose will was done and who will be glorified for it. So this relieves us to trust in God for the fruit, for results, and everything that we do. And thirdly, let me pose this as a question. What does our prayer lives say about our dependence upon God and our desire to fulfill His will? If someone could observe your prayer life, would they say this is a person who trusts in a sovereign God for results of everything they do? Would that be evident in your prayer life? Would they say this is a, is, a, is a person who is greatly concerned with following God's will? It is evident in his prayer life. Because if we are lacking in these areas, perhaps we are practical atheists. Who, who are we trusting in? If we're not crying out to God for, for results, who are we trusting in? Our own abilities? As a church, brothers and sisters, who who are you trusting in for for the results of of what will happen here? God forbid you're trusting in me. God forbid you trust in, in Pastor Rick or anyone else. So let me ask you this. Does your trust in God to build up this church to keep it faithful to Him. Is that trust of God reflected in your prayer life? As I've said before, before this message, were you trusting in me to to bring a word that could change hearts and change lives? Or were you trusting in God, evidenced by your praying that God would use this message and use the messenger? Even Spurgeon would say, a a man of tremendous gifts, that that all of his success in ministry is due to the prayers of his people. This should be our mentality. We we trust in God. There's only one person who who can change hearts, who can change lives, who can grow his church, and it's not a man. So we need to be crying out to God. And and this shows our our prayer life is a demonstration of who we are trusting in for results. Our prayer life is a demonstration of whether or not we are truly seeking after God's will. So let us live and pray as though there is a sovereign God whose will should be obeyed and who controls all things, including the fruit of all of our endeavors. And let us take comfort that though God may wreck our plans, they are always wrecked for our good. Do you think about that? All things work together for good to those who love God, called according to His purpose. God never changes your plans for your bad. Do you recognize that? 
And, and perhaps most of you could, could look, at, look back at your life and you can see all of the times you, you created these elaborate plans and God just crushed them and changed the direction of your life. And you look back now and you say, it was for my good. But we need to trust that now and in the future. That though we make plans, we, we plan ahead, we, we attempt to do things. Yes, we, we trust in God for the results. But we also rejoice even when God changes our plans. And we trust that He is faithful. We, we, we rejoice in that knowing that, that whatever happens, it will be for our good and for His glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that you are a sovereign God. We ask that you would help us to live and pray as though we believe that. We thank you, Father, that in many ways you have made your will known to us of what we ought to do, how we ought to live. We ask that you would help us to live as though you have a will and have given it to us. Help us to be faithful in these areas. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.